Hello and welcome to an isolated episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. And today we're reviewing part one of the socially obligated horror movie trilogy with 1980's The Shining. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. So uh, why can't the realtor meet us up here and show us around the property? This uh, kind of feels like work. Uh, something about COVID precautions. He texted me a lock code and said there should be info and a packet inside. Oh yeah, here we go. This is the packet, I think. Damn, this is thick. Let's, uh, let's see a little bit about the property. Oh, built in 1907, nice. Yeah, we can technically get a tax credit on the shop since we'll be restoring it, like it's a historical building and stuff like that. I like it, okay. Uh, location feels good too. It uh, it would be nice to be outside of the city for the second location, you know? I told you, whole new client base up here. Yeah, it's just, it's so odd that it's, it's kind of cheap, don't you think? Uh, is this packet gonna tell me this is built on a Native American burial ground? <laughs> don't overthink it, amigo. Let's just see the packet. Well, no, hold on. Uh, oh, there's some sort of newspaper clipping in here. Uh, man, I, I'm, I'm working up an appetite to drive it up here. You, you, you want to grab? Uh, business, uh, business owner Charles Grady is accused of murdering his business partner? Ancient history, man. Uh, this is 2017. I'm surprised there's even a newspaper in here. Look, from what I understand, it was a heat of a moment kind of thing. There wasn't any thought, no premeditation or Complete anything. Complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and killed his family with an axe, stacked them neatly in one of the rooms in the West Wing, and then he put both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth? Look, man, it's a great price, and Kate is a confirmed ghost star and horror film addict. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm I, I, I don't know, man. I think... Uh, uh, whoa, I just... tra Travis, I... You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm just gonna bash them right the fuck in. Get away from me. <laughs> but first, let's review 1980s The Shining. Jack Torrance is contracted to maintain an esteemed lodge isolated in the Colorado mountains. As Jack and his family become more and more familiar with the grounds, a mysterious force begins to weigh on Jack's mind and chip away at his sanity. Danny, Jack's son, has a psychic connection that gives him insight to the terrible history of the hotel and the sinister spirits that haunt it. But will it be enough to help his family escape the horror of the Overlook Hotel? Alrighty, Travis. We got our five points of inspection. Long shot, you don't know Jack, King versus Tyrant, buried payoffs, and a picture's worth a thousand words. But before we jump into those, I'd love to know your quick diagnostic. What'd you think of the film? Well, as you may know, I like to give a little context on the first time I've seen a movie, if I can remember it. Um, my family was a big fan of getting the HBO free preview weekends and then taping everything that aired. <laughs> and when you say tape, you mean like literally like a VHS tape, VHS, right? yes, <laughs> for the younger audience, a literal tape. Um, but this was actually 
on a VHS with another horror film. I believe it was Friday the 13th Part 4. Oh, wow. And uh, as quite... a young kid, my taste clearly was terrible because I only watched the tape for Friday the 13th. Oh, what and a double feature. And then one night I was watching it for like the fifth time and woke up in the middle of The Shining. Uh, in fact, that opening ominous score that I love, that's what woke me up. Mm -hmm. And I stayed up for the rest of the night and watched it. I've loved it. I will say with a more critical eye, I've got some objections to this movie. Um, but yeah, we'll save those for later. What about you? I, I have to agree. That was kind of my stick. I mean, I it's one of I've always claimed this is one of my absolute favorite horror movies. Um, my top one being Jurassic Park. One day we'll review that and I'll get to make my argument here. But um, I uh, I still this is still one of my most beloved horror movies. But it is definitely it is interesting watching it with a critical eye versus just watching it like as entertainment some of the stuff you pick up on and like, you know, uh, we'll definitely get into it in the five points inspection, but I, I felt the same way. I still very much enjoyed the movie. It is what two and a half hours long, which is an hour over our, our, <laughs> our typical, um, where we like to see a movie land. Um, but all in all, I, I did think it was enjoyable. Um, so that's, I'd say that's, you know, as quick as I can give a diagnostic. Yeah, it's a good jumping off point. So, what I really wanted to get into before we kind of get into this stuff that we, you know, maybe drove us a little bit nuts or we want to, you know, pick it apart with a fine tooth comb there as, as critics is um, long shot. So we'll start there in our five point inspection. What I do love about this film is it does an absolutely amazing job of defining scale, size, isolation, and even just the, the how big the grounds are by the way it is shot, the cinematography. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. The movie opens up with Jack riding up for his interview, and you basically, it's like almost like a bird flying over this river, and then it's watching his car basically drive through all of these different environments, and you can see it's getting colder. There's more snow as it starts to get towards the Overlook Hotel. And, and again, before you even realize the movie is going to be about isolation, you're already understanding how far removed the Overlook Hotel is because you have journeyed with jack or at this point you don't even know it's jack it's just a yellow beetle bug you've journeyed with it and um throughout that and then my that it just they even when he's taking the family up they follow the same thing um and i just i mean what, what was your thought just the opening sequence again that haunting music it's even interesting because it's haunting music but the actual i i dare to say filter but it's the easiest thing to say in the day of instagram and all this shit but like it's still it's a very bright picture like there's not any like shadows or anything like that it, it's almost like if you change the music it could be a family friendly or you know kind of a, a fun uplifting film but it's that score that really helps as you're going through this isolation yeah it, it gives you that sense of foreboding because other, otherwise you might get caught in just the pure beauty of it mm -hmm. Um, but I love the opening shot. I think it's interesting that you mentioned how bright it was. I think you could say that about most of this movie. Yes. Like, to me, traditional horror films are everything's in the shadows and you use lighting and stuff to kind of throw you off. This movie, for the most part, is bright and still unsettling. Yes, which I think is, cr yeah, it's crazy how well they were able to pull that off. But even beyond just the opening shot, like, there's a shot at the beginning, um, when the whole family gets up there, the Torrances, and they're they're being basically escorted through the hotel, and they're you know they're getting all of the different information in the background from uh, what's his name, Ullman. Um, and by the way, did you? 
I didn't catch it until like the fourth time his name was said, and it was uh, like there was a light or like a young female voice says, "Bye, Mister Omen." I was like, "Oh my God, is his name supposed to be a playoff of Omen?" Because he's the one who gives the whole story about the murder in 1970 and all that. I'm like, "Oh my God, I think it was supposed to be a playoff of Omen." I mean, if you think that, then that means Stephen King would have had to have planned that. Probably, but um, sorry, I I, I digress. But as Olman is is taking them through like these long, long shots, which a lot of times in in movies like that's that's used to show like oh time is passing or something like that, or like oh there's some kind of movement, so it looks like it, the story is progressing. But to me, the way it's used in this is just to show how large and vast the building is, because. Of course, you have the throwaway dialogue about like, oh, my God, it's so big. I feel like I'll need breadcrumbs in order to find myself. But like they actually use the cinematography to make this place feel massive as they're going through it. And even then some of the shots of like when Jack is working on the typewriter and it is just this gigantic like cavernous. Exactly. Like where it's like everything just looks gigantic and spaced out in this movie, which, again, adds to the isolation because you're seeing, again, not typical horror these gigantic wide open spaces, whereas horror is typically all about, you know, the very tight corridors and stuff like that, where a jump out scare, or even that, like there's a lot of tension based off of that. So I just think that there are some absolutely gorgeous long shots throughout the movie. Yeah. And you know, what's funny when you say long shots, I think you're saying from a very far back perspective, but also long shots in the sense that we're just going to linger on a shot. Like Mm -hmm. the camera's going to be moving but you're going to feel like the hotel is the camera and it's following these characters around, Mm -hmm. which sets up perfectly. I don't know if this is a spoiler. Clearly it's not if you're listening to this, but Scatman Crothers, the way he dies, the whole movie is setting you up for that scare. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can only accomplish that if you are disciplined and you have all these long tracking shots and eventually you kind of break the mold that you've had before and it works perfectly. Like I've always thought that the two biggest stars in this movie are Jack Nicholson and the camera. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say like, again, yeah, to that point, the long shots are the distance, but also yeah, to your point, it's also just the length of shots too. Cause like you said, like we talk about this movie is two and a half hours long and we typically like somewhere between an hour and a half to maybe, you know, hour and 45 minutes is our, our sweet spot for a movie but like i think a lot of what plays into this movie is how many of the shots are just so long and drawn out and again it adds so much to the tension of the movie because it is even in a time like today movies are really bad about like a scenes every three seconds the scene has to change it has to change it has to change but like back then like scenes could breathe a little bit more but in this movie like it is like it's almost to the point where it's like okay why are we still like or when danny's riding the bike and how often does nothing happen we're just constantly just watching him ride again showing how big and vast this place is as he rides the tricycle around it's just like again it's it's crazy how long some of the shots are and again it adds to the length of the movie but i think that's what adds to so much tension that's in this movie yeah as much as i would complain about the runtime. I was trying to put my finger on why it never bothers me with this movie, and it's because all the excess runtime is just used to build atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's a not only a lost art, I think it might be dead. Absolutely. I'd, I'd have to agree completely. Just so- kidding. Tune in next week. <laughs> so you made a valid point. The two biggest stars of the movie were the camera, which I feel we kind of tacked on here. And the other was Jack Nicholson. Do you do you want to kind of go into our next five point inspection? You don't know Jack. Yes, I I 
look forward to this one. What All do you right. got? So I just, for this segment, I think we really need to look at as much as I, it was kind of a, a fun play on, is it, are we talking about Jack Torrance or Jack Nicholson here? And it is absolutely about Jack Nicholson and his performance because there are moments, I, there are a few times I can think of performances where I would call it physical acting because I don't know what else to call it, but just there's no dialogue. It is just Jack Nicholson's, the way he reacts in his facial expressions throughout this movie. They're just like, they're spot on. They're amazing. Sometimes they make me laugh, probably because I'm, uh, you know, sociopath at heart. Um, sometimes it's like, <laughs> but at other times it's just like, just the way he reacts. Like you're just like you are almost uncomfortable watching him because you're watching him just again whittle away his sanity and and become this kind of crazy person. Which I'll say whittle away, but they kind of establish at the beginning of the movie that he's a crazy person in the drive up. Did you notice like, and the, when they're talking to the family and. They're driving up, and as Danny and, and Wendy are asking him questions, like he seems like he could not be less interested in being in that car with them until Danny brings up the Donner party. And all of a sudden, when he's talking about cannibalism, like he's got a smile on his face, and he like there's a certain energy in him as he's talking about like the horrific Donner party. And I'm just like, oh, no, they set him up as crazy from the beginning, which is something I didn't notice until I watched it again. Well, and that's also why I put the line in the open about his wife being a ghost story fan. It's like, he just was delivered the news that he's staying in a place that drove a father crazy to kill his whole family. And now he is literally following in those footsteps, which hedge maze at the end, we'll go there. But his only reaction is, yeah, hey, it's not going to bother me. I need some alone time to write. And you know, my wife, you know, if this were 2021, Oh, she loves a good true crime podcast. <laughs> like he just completely brushes it aside. So yeah, I, He's completely insane from jump to me. So, um, I just are there are there any highlights for for Jack Nicholson's performance that you want to? I mean, even just his delivery of lines. Did did you? Well, wanna... you know what? It's funny you mentioned his physical acting. It it made me think of a a scene where he is nonverbal. I I think there's some grunting, but when he's mad after Wendy accuses him of uh, abusing Danny. Mm -hmm. And he's just walking down the hallway to the gold room and he's just kind of like grunting and like shadow boxing a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know the scene I'm talking about? Absolutely. Like no words are used by him, but it just shows, like you said, he is falling apart by the second. Yep. There's <laughs> the the scene when Danny goes to get his fire truck and Jack Nicholson is sitting on the bed and he's sleep deprived and he just he's just staring out the window like that is just a harrowing scene to me again like just the way he looks like he's completely gone like he's not like no one's home and all of a sudden like he snaps back to um there's there's the scene even when wendy is accusing him of hitting uh of yeah attacking danny and he's just sitting in the chair like just like stunned like oh, i wasn't it wasn't me what i, I couldn't that was the me. image i sent you an yeah. email yeah it's just like there's so many fans yeah. yeah just befuddled um, even, I mean, it wasn't Jack Nicholson, but one of my other favorite stares in the movie is after Wendy talks about is telling the doctor about when Jack Torrance uh, dislocated Danny's arm and she goes through the whole story and all that. And all of a sudden it just hard cuts to the doctor's face and the doctor is just like, no, this is a problem. Like, what? I can't believe you just told me this and you haven't done anything about it. Like, I actually laughed at that. I was like, maybe that's just a sign of the times, but I'm like, it was... 
a very genuine reaction, but it's just like, oh yeah, no, he's crazy. Like you should have known that there was a problem with Jack Torrance when he dislocated your son's arm. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, Wendy is just, you know, basically the old boys will be boys explanation. It could happen a million times. Like, no, you ripped your son's arm out of the socket. Well, and my problem with Wendy as a character, and I might be sidetracking a little bit here, is just essentially, I mean, they portray her as just a weak woman, like from start to finish, like even the way well, they have her run. Through. Can I stop you for a second? Oh, is that going to get us into another tra- or another um, uh, point of inspection? Yeah, when we talk more about Kubrick versus King, I've got a lot to say about Wendy. All right, we'll we'll hold off then there because I don't think we're quite done with with Jack Tor- or Jack Nicholson and his performance because, as you said, I just there's so much we're just. Well, Brett, it doesn't feel like you gave a single moment's thought <laughs> about his performance. Oh God, it's just. I I would love to see how many lines he actually had in the runtime of the movie, like ratio of runtime to lines for other movies with like a, a main character protagonist or your, your top build actor, because I honestly don't think he has that many lines in the movie, but when he delivers, like they are always impactful. Like any scene that he is delivering dialogue, like there's the only exception I can think of is when he is talking to Ullman at the very beginning. And like, that's when I honestly start thinking, I'm like, because I hadn't seen The Shining in a while, I was like, why did they choose Jack Nicholson for this role? Like, it's it's kind of interesting. Like, he doesn't come off as, like, the everyday guy for me, you know, that you would have coming up here. And, like, oh, he's he doesn't have that nice guy demeanor. Like, I feel like they're implying he is in, in Ullman's office. But the rest of the movie is spot on. Like, I can't think of another person who could have pulled off Jack Torrance other than Jack Nicholson. Well, this movie ultimately, and we can get into it with Kubrick, but... It makes me wonder what Stanley Kubrick feels about his family or felt about his family. <laughs> I mean, because, yeah, Jack Nicholson slash Jack Torrance. It seems like he's barely hanging on as far as wanting to participate in this family. Like, I don't think he wants to kill them on the way up, but it just feels like he regrets being a father and a husband. Absolutely. And that's just a weird note to me. Absolutely. And like, I think they try to to play off like he loves his son because they do bring that up multiple times. Like, I love I fucking do anything for him. I, you know, I absolutely love him. He never talks that way about Wendy. Like you can tell almost from the beginning the disdain he has for Wendy. I even have it in my notes where like there's a certain part at the very beginning of the movie where it's just like you can very clearly I think it's in the car right up. You can tell he does not give a shit about Wendy. Well, and I think we talked about it right before recording. And I mean, feel free to deliver some of that line. But the scene where she tries to bring him a sandwich while he's writing, I know we're supposed to take this as the mental decline of somebody because of supernatural forces, maybe. Um, But that feels like that's a conversation that they've had a million times, even when they weren't under the stress of being at the overlook, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever you hear me typing, or if you don't hear me typing, where the fuck you hear me doing? That means I am working. Yeah. And again, the delivery, the way they have Wendy deliver the line, just so you know, like so meek. I thought you'd bring you some sandwiches. Like you can tell Kubrick wants the audience to be on Jack Nicholson's side on some level, and I think that's why 
at times this movie plays too comedically because of Jack Nicholson. As much as I love the performance, I think it might hurt it as an actual horror movie. Oh yeah, it's certainly I, over the top. So, <laughs> but over the top in a funny way, like more of a black comedy kind of way. Yes, absolutely. I could not agree more. Still wouldn't change the performance at all. Like, I absolutely loved Jack Nicholson through this whole movie. Even if it does slightly change the tone yeah. and direction of the movie, what it should be, I I watched this movie for Jack Nicholson. Let's just say that. Yeah, I mean, same. I, I watch it for Nicholson and the camera. Yep. So, and one other thing, just before we, because I think we're about to jump into King vs. Tyrant. The other thing I thought was interesting in all these long shots through the corridors and the hallways and all that is there's always, and this kind of ties into Jack Torrance as a character, is like there's always this sense of there's pictures of the history of the hotel and like every room, like it's following you. Like the history of the hotel is almost escapable. And I have to assume that that had to be intentional because again, it's like. Wait, did you say escapable or inescapable? I don't know what I said. I meant to say inescapable. Um, okay, yes. you just said escapable. I was like, well, it'd be a short movie. <laughs> yeah, but yes, the the history, and it's not till the very end you really find out that the history, like they kind of tease it a little bit um, throughout the movie, but it's not till the end where you kind of find out how fucked up some of the history of the hotel is. Um, but to me, again, it is just throughout the, the entire movie, having all of those pictures of the guests and all that, just they're constantly just littering the walls of the hotel I just feel like it is, again, this idea that the the history, the spirits, the presence of the Overwatch Hotel is inescapable. Like, by being there, like, you are essentially a part of the hotel as opposed to just being a guest visiting or a maintenance person, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because in all of the hotels I've ever stayed in, I feel like most hotels are trying to do the opposite of that. They don't want to make you remember the fact that the room you are in has had a hundred different people in it in the past year. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, in this movie, they very much do a good job of showing you that like, this has been a long history and maybe a history that repeats itself. Yep. Cause yeah, the beauty um, of it too is they don't ever really until the end they don't ever focus on the pic. Like, you never get to see what's in the pictures. It is just, you know, they are pictures, and they are all over the place. Yeah, and I mean, again, Kubrick seems like a son of a bitch, and maybe that'll be a good transition, but the man can direct the fuck out of a movie. Yeah, so with that because said... Because it pays off at the end with the picture, of course, but like you said, that's been a ominous presence over the movie for two hours and 30 minutes before you really see what are in those pictures mm -hmm. so i think with that said let's go ahead and jump in a king versus a tyrant you want to take it off from the top yeah um this is probably one of the most dissected movies in history so I'm, i don't think i'll be breaking news for anybody but Stephen King fucking hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Fucking I'm assuming hates you're aware of that. It. Fucking hates it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, to a degree that seems very personal. And again, well covered ground, but I think the reason he hates it is because this is he's admitted Stephen King has that this is his most autobiographical book. And he kind of saw himself as a little bit of Jack Torrance because apparently he had an incident where he got mad at his son 
who is now a, a famous writer in his own right, uh, for scattering his papers about. And he didn't dislocate his arm, but he imagined a scenario where he could have done that. And then to have what you as an author wrote almost as yourself be portrayed as just a psycho that is excited about talking about cannibalism in the first six minutes of the movie. I think this book is just too personal for Stephen King because I think Stanley Kubrick made a masterpiece that differs quite a bit from the the subject material. So absolutely. And at the end of the day, like the book has a lot of differences in the in the ending but ultimately like uh jack torrance dies when the hotel explodes because he neglects a a furnace as opposed to dying freezing to death out in the the hedge maze um and that along with what i think is one of i still don't understand kubrick's decision making for this but the other i think biggest departure or one of the biggest departures from the book is the death of dick um was it holloman like Dick Holloman is the character. Yeah, Holloran. Holloran. So, I've never understood, because I saw the movie The Shining first before I did any kind of research way back when and all that. But I'm like, I never understood the point of having. I mean, I guess from a a story narrative, it was like that's how they got a new snow cat so that Wendy and Danny could escape. But I'm like, it felt like such a terrible way to make that the resolution was basically. Dick's whole motive in the movie was to come back to die so that Wendy and Dick could, or Wendy and Danny could escape. When in reality, in the book, they all three escaped. Like, and then, like, there's subsequent novels and stories afterward where, like, Danny, Wendy, and Dick remain very close, but you never get any chance with that because Kubrick decided to go ahead and kill Dick off immediately. Yeah, and. When you really look at it, what we've talked about, and probably what Stephen King should have the biggest objection is, the woman and the black man completely get sidelined. Like like you've talked about, Wendy does nothing in this movie but being kind of an annoying nag. And then you, you look at the behind-the-scenes stuff where Stanley Kubrick with both Shelley Duvall and Scatman Crothers made them shoot scenes like a hundred times, like kind of a form of psychological torture. And it really kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And I think that's why Stephen King should be offended by this movie, not Mm -hmm. because of the way he portrays Jack, because I mean, ultimately Stanley Kubrick has probably made God knows how much money for Stephen King, Mm -hmm. but yeah, everybody other than Jack and to an extent, Danny, have fucking nothing in this movie like it, it's it's flat out disrespectful at times the way they're portrayed yeah. and then yeah like you said dick Halloran just gets eliminated even though we've spent all this time with him like why have the travel montages from miami and show his hotel room just to have him get ice 10 seconds into the hotel yeah and it's like you say sideline but i think it's worse than sideline because sideline means they just kind of get ignored i i feel like they actually just kind of like basically sanded down their characters to where they meant nothing like it's i i could deal with sideline where it's just like we're gonna focus on jack this entire movie and we're not gonna put any time and effort into these characters but i feel like especially with wendy like wendy is just portrayed terribly like she's portrayed as a weak woman i feel like the way they have her run through the hotel is very like 
you know, damsel in distress type where like there's no strength to it. The way she holds the knife with like a loose wrist, like and what the is bat. she? Yeah, and the bat, like yeah, where she's holding in the middle of the bat. It's just like so much of this movie portrays Wendy as just being weak. And even at the end of the movie, it's not like she like it's an opportunity for her character to overcome that and show strength. Really, she just manages to get outside and sees Danny and they drive off. Like there's never she never I don't think really defends herself against Jack. She hits him the one time with the knife and then he gets distracted and runs off. So it's like at no point. I was going to say, yeah, the only reason she's alive at the end of the movie is because Dick shows up. Exactly. And I'm like, so she doesn't even get an opportunity to really stand up for herself because at the end of the day, yeah, it is. Dick sacrifices ultimately what saves her in that instance, too, because, again, Jack gets gets distracted and, and leaves her again probably because he thinks she's so weak he doesn't have to worry about it yeah and i was thinking about kubrick are you familiar with his other filmography um i know he did clockwork orange in 2001 space odyssey but that's about it for me <clears throat> what i did not realize and i guess this might not be abnormal tell me if i'm just grasping at straws but like 95% of his filmography are based on pre-existing books. Like on its head, does that sound abnormal to you or am I just grasping at straws? I wouldn't say it seems abnormal. I'm trying to think of, I mean, in that time, I feel like that probably wasn't uncommon to use stuff like those IPs as source material. Cause you got to think, I mean, today, how many people how many of their movies being are just comic books based off of comic books and shit like that like a lot of it has you know there's pre-existing source ah. material that has an outline so i i don't know if i would okay let me ca- let me counter yeah. real quick i agree but do you know a director on the level of stanley kubrick's prestige who exclusively operate out of adapting novels no no i wouldn't say that. i i don't so that's the weird thing for me. And I just wrote down just a few that span 1957 to 1975, all of these based upon a pre-existing novel. Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Dr. Strangelove, 2001 A Space Odyssey, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and then of course The Shining. And you can go further, Full Metal Jacket is as well. And it's... It tracks for me because it feels like he likes to just take pre-existing characters and then just make it an exercise in cold cinematic ability, much like a Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I was gonna say at that point, watching that, it looks like he doesn't. His focus isn't on. He doesn't want to focus on the script making or building characters. It is all about the the cinematography. Like he is a director, and that is what he wants to focus on. So picking material like that novels that already exist it means he doesn't have to work as hard to try and create a foundation to build off of he essentially just has to illustrate an existing world yes you read my mind that that was my exact thought because i just don't think that kubrick as a man had much interest in human emotion that's why I, i really wondered what his his family life was like because i have a feeling that there's a lot of Jack Torrance, not the murderous part, but the just please stop talking about me. Oh, wait, you brought up the Donner party? That interests me. Now I'll engage you. Yeah. But damn, does he have a great filmography. Like, I mean, he doesn't, he probably, 
he doesn't have that much, but what, when he did something, he just crushed it. Yeah, I mean, it was always a big deal. Hmm. But yeah, ultimately, I can see why King is pissed. But The Shining as a book is going to live on much longer than it naturally would have because of that movie. Right. Well, what's interesting, too, is when anybody brings up The Shining, they bring up this movie. Like, there's been plenty of, like, made-for-TV series or, you know, miniseries that have been done on The Shining and all that. But again, when someone talks about The Shining, they're talking about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. You know, there's just—and again, I think so much of it is because of the way he built the movie— Unless about necessarily the narrative. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we, we've covered that pretty well. If you have any final thoughts, go ahead. But I will say, from Stephen King's point of view, I get it. If you create a work of art and then someone adapts it and then completely betrays what you thought you were trying to say, I get it. But that's an artist getting close, too close to their art. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. I wonder how much of Stephen King has like changed his contracts because again this is in the 1980s but he gave free reign like he when he gave the rights over it was like you can change whatever you want and i guess it was one of those you know the artist's code or something like he expected there to them to keep the you know stanley to keep the the core of what the story meant and stanley didn't stanley went and made his own movie out of the shining yeah and i mean all due respect to stephen king i think Kubrick is a little bit more important to film than King is to literature. Really? Wow. I think that's a bold statement. I mean, I'm not, if you're talking about just commercially, yeah, King has more impact, but I'm talking about actual quality of work. I haven't read all of King's stuff and all that, but I feel like King has quite the, quite the influence on the literary world. I, I'm not, I wouldn't, I, I honestly wouldn't have a, a hat to throw in to, to either side of the ring on that one, but that is, I think that is a bold statement, sir. <laughs> but I appreciate well, here's, your bold here's statements. Here's what I'll say. Stephen King has written about 750 things. He's bound to hit. Yeah, cast Whereas a wide Kubrick, net. like you said, he didn't do much, but pretty much everything that he did is being studied by Fair enough. The Christopher Nolans of the world. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Again, I, I appreciate the bold takes. So um, I do think as we were t- kind of talking about the difference and stuff like that in, in the book and the messaging and all that, I did want to hit on buried payoffs. Because one of the things I had an issue with this movie, and I don't know if there's a director's cut that's even freaking longer than this movie or not. Um, but I do feel like that there were a lot of payoffs that I expected someone at the caliber of Stanley Kubrick to give that were, that fell off. Like the biggest one to me is the Indian burial ground. Um, because they talk about the Indian burial ground. Wendy has the whole thing about, oh, wow, look at all the native American motifs and all that. And they're as Ullman's talking are taking them through, they're looking at all the native American artwork. I expected more to come from the Native American burial ground. And I know there's theories about like, oh, that that's what the, the you know, the blood represents. Um, I don't believe that. I think the blood is just the, you know, the travesties that have occurred in the, um, in the hotel itself. Um, but it's just one of those things where I, I definitely, I, I think that there could have been more of a, a play. And 
I was just looking it up as I was talking, so if I sound a little distracted, I wanted to see when Poltergeist was made because I was wondering, did one of them influence the other? Because Poltergeist is again another movie. Oh, they were the house. Poltergeist of is definitely after. Yeah, eighty-two. It was built. It was two years after. So I'm wondering if someone else felt like, oh, Indian burial ground. That sounds cool. Like let's make a movie about that. Um, because that was one of the things. Also, when Wendy makes the comment about like, oh my god, I mean literal breadcrumb, like. You know, I, I'm going to need to put breadcrumbs to find out where I am. Like, I expected there to be some kind of waypoint that she had to create or Danny had to create because they get lost in an area of the hotel they weren't supposed to be in or that was never heated or something like that. Um, so that was like a, uh, that was a I think you're expecting too much for 1980 there. Yeah, I, there, but there's a lot of like, I guess, like little throwaway lines where I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to need breadcrumbs because I'll get lost or even like. Honestly, it would have been fine to me, like in the hedge maze, if they had done, if like she had put down breadcrumbs because they were going to get lost in the hedge maze or something like that. So that's how they made sure they could get behind him. And I don't know if, you know, Danny using the footprints to get back out is, is kind of alluding to that. But to me, Wendy would have needed to do it for that to be a successful payoff. But I definitely just think that there's there's pieces like that in the movie. It's also how they just kind of oddly throw in like the the guy with the bestiality just kind of at the end and some of like the haunted guests like you never hear any of the horror the, the stories of the people the spirits haunting you just kind of know they're there and like you get a glimpse at them at times and i think that's stuff that like i think it would have added to the movie if we had gotten a little more taste of some of those stories to understand why they would be trapped in the hotel as opposed to it's just like it's just a haunted hotel you know i agree but i think if you go that route you have to then sacrifice the long tracking shots because if you're starting to introduce any level of backstory to any ghost in the hotel, you're probably looking at a three-hour runtime or well, more. It's that. So or... ultimately, I think if you have to decide on amazing camera work and visuals, I think you you take that rather than the backstory because I feel like there's plenty of movies that have the backstory but don't have the artistry that Kubrick provides. So I'm just glad that this exists. I agree. And to me, I, I think I would have been on that side too. I'd rather have the, the long panning shots. I would have just probably pulled some of that stuff out. Where like, to me, it's a it's Easter egg or a nod to somebody who's read the book because he knows how much he deviated True. from the source material. I'm like, I don't think some of those shots of like the dude with his head split open that's like cheersing wind like when wendy's walking through the hotel after jack's oh, that completely lost it and for wendy is terrible yeah like all of that i would have like she could have just walked through and been creeped out i don't think we needed her to to roll up on a bunch of ghosts and that's the kind of stuff where i'm talking about i'm like there, there was no payoff with any of that stuff because there was no lead up to that like Aside from Jack, like Jack experiencing the ghost makes sense, especially at the end of the movie with the, the zoom in on the picture, which we'll get to. But the rest of like Wendy experiencing the ghost to me doesn't make as much sense. Or if Danny had, because again, he has the psychic connection, him seeing the ghost, that makes a lot more sense. Wendy doing it to me is when the movie starts to like look for the shock value instead of just staying true to what yes. it was. That nailed it. Because in the book, it's implied that Jack's got a little bit of the shine as well. Mm -hmm. And so it would make sense that Danny and Jack see the, you know, the ghosts. But yeah, by the end of the movie, you just have that pointless scene of Wendy basically just running through the hotel, like that terrible ballroom or dining room with all the skeletons yeah. and the cobwebs. Mm -hmm. Like that looked like a, a college film. 
Yes, I agree. And that's that to me is the biggest hit against this movie is that whole sequence of Wendy escaping the hotel after Jack is gone to kill Dick. And it's just like it's tonally it doesn't make sense for the rest of the movie. Again, with the payoffs, like there's nothing none of that makes sense for the movie. And it just breaks up two great scenes like I know we didn't like that Dick got killed in the manner that he did, but like I said, the scene where it happens is artistry. Mm. And then you have the hedge maze, one of the most famous endings in cinema history, but in between that sandwich is this weird tour of the hotel with Wendy. Yep. So with that, we alluded to it. Let's go ahead and get to our fifth point here. A picture is worth a thousand words. So, you know, I think audience, you've probably picked up on where we're going with this one. We want to talk about the end of the movie. It ends with, you know, Jack is dead. He's frozen to death in the hedge maze. It's assumed that Wendy and Danny are going to get to safety because they've got the, the snow cat and they're heading down the mountain. Uh, and the movie, it's playing old timey music from what, probably the 1920s from the ho- opening of the hotel. And it zooms in and it zooms into a picture and it continues to zoom. And you realize that Jack Torrance was, or someone who looks very much like Jack Torrance was at the hotel in 1921 basically when it opened um leaving the the viewer to try and under, like figure out has jack always been a part of the hotel is he a reincarnation of the original jack was he one of the gradies there's a lot of theories about it so well travis what's your take on the zoom into the picture at the end um this is kind of my cult of kubrick i think people give Kubrick way too much fucking credit. Number one, this movie <laughs> took two years to film. So all these little fucking continuity errors that people try to ascribe meaning to, it took two years because he's an asshole. Yeah, because and he took... makes people shoot a hundred takes. Yeah, yeah. The the scene with Scatman talking to Danny over the chocolate ice cream, he made Scatman do that a hundred and forty eight times. It's insane. Yeah, I. I lost a lot of respect for Stanley Kubrick when I heard that, because I don't know, did you do any further research into why he might've done that? No. He did not want Scatman Crothers in the movie. He wanted, have you seen, um, Dr. Strangelove? Yes. Slim Pickens. Okay. He wanted Slim Pickens, but Slim Pickens was not available. But if you take two years to film, people can become available. And the rumor is he was doing that shit to get Scatman Crothers to quit. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, and that that just pissed me off. And in fact, it pissed me off so much that it derailed me from the original point. The picture. (laughs) Yeah. He's on record. Kubrick is on record about this. Do you know that? uh, No. What did he say? Uh, He said basically that it was a reincarnation of an earlier person at the hotel. Okay. Um, I think that's probably the least interesting way to see it, but I have to take Kubrick at his word because again, I think he was too concerned about suddenly dissing his family and again, making a technical exercise that was great. So I don't think there's much to say. I have some theories that I wish were true, but if Kubrick said it, that to me is what it is. What about you? Yeah, I can take it at that if you then bring it back to my whole thing about the pictures, and that's essentially that, you know, 
the hotel is inescapable and that regardless of you know Jack's spirit is attached to that hotel so he'll always be drawn back to it one way or another and then that might be why he resents being a father and a husband so much is because at the end of the day his destiny is to to reside in the hotel not to be a husband or or a father um because i would like to imagine that he probably would not have put the shotgun in his mouth after killing his family because he loved the hotel so much so i it kind of checks out if you allow the other pieces to be basically backup and supporting evidence for that claim um if it's just oh no he's a reincarnation because i thought it'd be fun then yeah i think that's a little a little basic to me it's again just kind of making oh let's make an ending that people will talk about versus it actually giving more meaning to the story as a whole yeah i guess ultimately what i choose to interpret and i guess it's tough for me if the creator came out and said something otherwise but I think it's just the sins of the father. Jack, Jack is doomed to do the same thing over and over again, whereas Danny erases the footsteps so that the father can't follow him. Mm -hmm. So that's the sexier, like, if I were making this Oscar bait for Chop Shop, that's the route I would go. But I, I think Kubrick is too much interested in the technical exercise to really give it that much thought. Yeah, it's... I also think I, I'd love the sense of the father thing. It would have made more sense because in the book, again, Jack breaks out of his trance with the hotel in order to give his family the opportunity to escape before the hotel explodes. But again, I think it needed to be that somehow Jack adds to the destruction of the Overwatch hotel again to kind of erase again that it's sense the of the overlook. father. I don't know why I said Overwatch. You're right. It's the Overlook Hotel. Um, <laughs> the Overlook Hotel. Um, I still think that would have been a more gratifying ending, especially with the scene where Wendy is working on the the boilers. Like, that's another one of those scenes where, like, it's just kind of randomly put in there. It doesn't really have any pay other than the fact that I guess Wendy is also helping maintain the the hotel. It's not just Jack. Um, but yeah, I, I really think that the the Overwatch look Overlook Ho well Watch Overlook Hotel should have exploded. <laughs> uh or should it should have been destroyed at the end via fire explosion whatever especially again you have the the line too about the girls were trying to burn it down like it should the the movie should have ended with it with it being destroyed yeah i think one of the few areas where king is absolutely right like he kubrick should have stuck to the skeleton a little bit more because yeah the end of the movie i guess the maze saves it from a technical standpoint but again there's no real emotional payoff yep um last thing i'll say uh, as as final words because i that's pretty much all i had to say about the the picture is travis do you know of a more iconic carpet in any movie than the shining the big lebowski Oh, damn, you're right. You say that. It I really tied the room together. It did tie the room together. I couldn't tell you what that carpet looked like, though. To me, it was just... No, you're right. You're right. I was just being contrarian. <laughs> but it was a... Kudos to you, sir. That was spot on. <laughs> I, I wish I had thought of that joke ahead of time so that I could have stopped <laughs> it before it happened. Killed it in its sleep. Um, but anyway, um, do you want to get in some choppy chop? Uh, absolutely. I will say, though, because I feel bad about stepping on your carpet point, no pun intended. 
Yeah, I mean, I work with several people who have shirts or socks or something with that print. So, yeah, this movie is iconic. You may hate it for a multitude of reasons, but you're a goddamn liar if you say it's not iconic. Yep. All righty. So let's get into some Chop Shop. So this this week, I think we might have inadvertently pulled the two hardest categories for this movie, if I'm completely <laughs> honest. I all week all I did was tell Kate about like I can't believe I'm like, we both got screwed. I'm like, I don't know who got the harder one. I'm like, literally every Oscar bait would have been easier, miniseries would have been easier. I just uh it just it's crazy. But you know, enough teasing. I got action would be easy. Action, yeah, blockbuster. Blockbuster would have been easy. Um, I got comedy. You got family friendly. <laughs> so I'm interested, Travis. Do you want to start us off with your family friendly shining? Man, or... <laughs> man. The uh, the email that I referenced earlier is the scene where Jack Nicholson has just been accused of choking his son, and he didn't do it. And he's just got a hand to his temple, and it's like, how? What? What's going on? That's my feeling on the chop shop this week. So, I'll give you mine, unless you come through in the clutch and flesh this bitch out. This will be about three minutes. So, you want it first? Uh, yeah, I yeah, I can go first if you want me to. No, no, no. I'm saying you want me to go first. Oh yeah, you absolutely go first. Sorry. All right. Well, this is the family friendly version of The Shining. It takes place at the Overwatch Hotel? Yeah, you know what? I've been desperately trying to think of an Overwatch character, but I've never played it. Because <laughs> I feel like there's a joke that... Diva? Is that one? Sure, that's one. She drives a robot. Is that accurate, or are you trolling me? No, there is. Oh, okay, there we go. V-A, yeah. Diva, yeah. <laughs> All right, so... As you introduced at one point, you like to kind of just, hey, this version of the movie is this meets this. Mine is Indian in the Cupboard meets The Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith. Ooh, okay. I I like where your, your direction Don't get excited, started. Brad. It's going to suck. I mean, you brought up Indian in the Cupboard, which honestly, that's a movie I haven't seen since I was a kid, so I don't know if it holds <laughs> up. I do not. <laughs> Same. Um, so in my version, Jack Torrance is a single father of Danny, and he's a struggling novelist. He's estranged from his wife, Wendy who is a, a writer as well, but she's much more successful. And Jack has trouble relating to his son because he feels like he's less of a man because Wendy is the successful, the breadwinner. You know, it, it led to their split because Jack could never handle her level of success. And really, that's basically where my setup takes us because I'm thinking Jack in this movie and maybe Stanley Kubrick, a little bit of a misogynist, yeah, could a not bit. handle a woman making more money than him, being more successful than him. So instead of having the Overlook be this evil place with ghosts, it's a it's a good place. Not the show, but it's a, you know, friendly ghost, Casper's. Okay. So Jack takes the job, 
you know, much in the same reason that he took it in this movie. You know, it's almost as a way though, like, hey, if I can take this four months off, I can write the novel that will eclipse my wife. It'll somehow magically fix my relationship with my son. And instead of the ghosts attacking them, hurting them, the, t the twin girls, Grady's twin girls, they kind of take Danny aside to kind of talk to him like, hey, we, and I don't know if this works for family friendly, but for this to work, they would have still been murdered by their father. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how we hang in there. Okay. 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 You know, we like to say, you know, people can grow, you know, they can change. Well, all these people change in the afterlife. Like the twin girls, they were, they tried to burn the hotel down. They misbehaved. You know, their father overreacted quite a bit by killing them both. Just a little. But basically the twins are going to take Danny under their wing and say, hey, this is these are the mistakes that we made. And then... Delbert or Charles, depending on, again, Cult of Kubrick, was that intentional? Grady's going to take Jack aside separately and be like, hey, this is where I made mistakes as a father. Let me give you some, like, kind of advice. <laughs> and by the end of the movie, Jack and Danny are going to come together and they're going to kind of solve their relationship. And then because it's, I'm thinking 90s family friendly, because for no reason at all, that's got to be the reason that the mom comes back. So Wendy's like, you know what? You really did learn a lesson at the Overlook. It is a little crazy that you learned it from ghosts, but gee golly, we're a family again. That's the super high level. Okay. I do like that Grady is going to teach Jack what he did wrong. And I feel like it starts with an axe and ends in murder. Um, so... <laughs> 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 um, but but uh yeah i yeah it was tough you know i i family I'm friendly gonna, is shining i i don't disagree sir i i honestly thought i'm like i don't know which one of these i would have rather had to try and and do so i i by all means i am i am not going to criticize i don't know where to take it either because i don't know yeah, because I mean, you don't want to imply that the children brought their death upon them because, by definition, a child is the child of the parent. But, you know. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they could die potato, of, potato. Like, smallpox or something like that. Maybe, you know, like daddy was an anti-vaxxer or something. I, I don't know. But, <laughs> like, <laughs> but, you know, if we want to keep the axe murder in, I think, you know, we we can probably find a way to make that family-ish friendly you know because it just means family friendly just means that you have to imply what happened you don't explicitly tell the kids that daddy killed his daughters with the axe like the adults will understand what happened but you just kind of cover it up with fun language right yeah maybe we even do the thing where the ghosts don't exactly know how they died mm -hmm. to try to again minimize the whole parental murder element yeah I, I like that. I think that's that's a good call. But ultimately, <laughs> I think you've got the bones for a a, a good shining family friendly film. Um, again, I just yeah, both of these were were tough. Yeah, there's a kind of famous uh, trailer for The Shining, the family friendly <laughs> Shining. I thought about just 
playing that audio here, but uh, that would be even more of a cop out than what I did. Travis, honestly, my my first thought was when you got family friendly was I should just swap them. I'll keep family friendly and then I'm <laughs> just going to make the trailer. I'm just going to make the script for the trailer of the family friendly shining that <laughs> So the recut. Well, you're a man of integrity, sir. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Do you, uh, you want me to jump into my comedy? Please do. Save oh. us, Brett. All right. So here's the thing. We, I, I like to try and, and try and find some form of inspiration. I'm going to go a touch of airplane and I don't know how much airplane is in this. I just feel like that at least gives me a little credit for picking a good classic comedy of maybe this era. And then, Honestly, some scary movie. I'm not going to pretend this is a highbrow comedy, Travis. All right. There's some real dumb shit, low hanging jokes, but it's a comedy nonetheless. So rather than sit here and try and spell out like I normally would with an Oscar bait or a blockbuster or horror or anything like that, I just decided I would take scenes from the movie and how I would convert those into comedy scenes. All right. So there's not going to be a lot of connective tissue in this, but here we go. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. So I tried to do this in pretty pretty much um, sequential order. They might be a little bit out because I was trying to remember when exact scenes happened in the movie. But for the most part, I, th I think we'll follow it. So my first real comedy scene is going to be when Wendy and Danny are talking to the doctor. And Danny mentions that uh, Tony lives in his mouth. And I'm thinking maybe this is a moment where the doctor's going to be like, oh, well, can I see? And she leans in to see Tony in the mouth and Danny winds up belching into her face. And like, she just comes back and like almost passes out from the smell of the belch. Right. <laughs> classic, classic. Um, <laughs> I, I got a feel on where this is going. Yeah. Classic, you know, what is it? Slapstick comedy here. All right. Um, my next, my next uh, comedy scene is they're driving up to the country, right? You got the three of them, the, the Torrances and the Yellow Bug, which super unsafe that Danny was not buckled in. I understand it was for the shot so that they could all be in it, but at the same time, like, come on, dog. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, as they're coming up, this is a good family-friendly, feel-good moment where, like, they're going to start playing I Spy. And at a certain point, like, it starts off as normal things, like, I spy something white, and it's a cloud. And, like, I spy something green, and it's a tree. And, like, at a certain point, it's going to devolve into, like, some real weird shit in the forest. Like, suddenly, like, Bigfoot's going to be there. Like, I spy something hairy. And, like, just, like, why is Bigfoot there? And then, like, I spy something hard, and it's, like, the skeletons of the Donner Party. So it's just, like, so like it's just weird stuff as they're driving up, as they're driving up the mountain. Um, so now our next scene is the family is getting a tour of the facility, right? And there's pictures on the wall. But instead of us waiting till the very end to show it, like, Ullman's going to actually show a couple of the pictures that are on the wall. And there's going to be, like, weird shit. Like, it's going to be Dino Barney the Dinosaur with, like, a hooker. JFK and leather chaps coming out of a cake for Marilyn Monroe. Maybe, like, Reagan is dressed in a dog costume. Like, it's going to be, like, some weird shit. Like, what is going on in this hotel? Like, I understand it's isolated, but, like, just, you know, like, things you wouldn't expect to see pictured on the wall of, like, famous people and, like, again, that classic comedy, like, what you're not expecting. Like, somebody really reserved doing something just batshit crazy. Um, 
So at the same time, I'm going to follow like Danny is still going to be in the game room and he's going to be throwing darts and he's going to wind up like hitting somebody in the eye. So when Danny gets brought to his family after the tour and all that, the person's clearly going to be wearing a bandage over their eye where Danny is like hit them in the eye with the dart. Um, my next scene is, and this is where I, I could not come up with. I love the idea of this scene. I could not figure out what it should be, though. So during the first Shining, when Dick is reading reading Danny's mind and he's like talking to his mind I want something just batshit crazy to be happening in Danny's mind and I can't tell if it should be like nursery rhymes or like a dump truck or like I cannot tell what the sound should be but I just want like Dick to just have this weird look on his face because he realizes that Danny might not be all the way there like he's kind of a weird kid um but I couldn't come up with what exactly would be in that moment. Like, what would be something so obscure and weird that, like, it would be kind of off-putting and, like, Dick would be like, what the fuck is wrong with this kid? See, I think that's where you have to have Danny having some sort of ridiculous memory that he's had. Just something that he's done that's completely random and childlike. Like, something they could play quickly, like... It's him, him eating dirt or something like when that. When he was like, a baby, he took his mom's like roast that she'd been working on forever and like took it outside and fed it to a dog. Yeah. Like just something just so childlike and just non-threatening and there's no reason for it to be here. And Dick is just like, yeah, there's not a lot on your mind, is there? <laughs> exactly. So my next one, and these might be a little out of order. So the next one is going to be the Jack when he starts making out with the with the the naked chick that winds up being old and like all like, you know, peeling apart. Yeah, so decomposing. Decomposing. There's the word I'm looking for. So Jack starts making out with the woman. He screams out in horror. He backs up, but instead of just like running out of the room, he winds up slamming the door to the bathroom, and like he looks befuddled. Just... Can I pause you real quick, Brett? Yeah. In the comedy, is this? We're still doing the full frontal nudity. It's like a pure R-rated comedy. Oh, yeah, we're going to go full R. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, gotcha. So he uh, he winds up slamming the door, right? And he's just puzzled, like, what the fuck was that? So he winds up opening the door back, and then all of a sudden he sees his naked wife there, right? And he's like, what the fuck? So he closes the door, and then he open, reopens the door. And it's going to be something else random. Maybe it's it's the guy in the dog costume again. Just like, what the fuck? <laughs> so then he winds up closing the door, opens it up again. Gene Simmons just sitting there like, hi, Jack. Not because I think Gene Simmons is a punchline to a joke, but just because I like Gene Simmons and I think I'd like to get him some more work. Not Gene Simmons. I'm thinking well, Richard Simmons. Have... I'm thinking Wait, Richard Simmons. you say Simmons. not Gene Simmons? I'm thinking Richard Simmons. Yeah, Richard Simmons, not Gene. Fuck Gene Simmons. Richard Simmons is who I want to be in there. Well, Brent, you know who you also have to have there? Who's that? Stephen King. Ooh, that's a good one. Stephen King winds up being in there as well. <laughs> and like he could just be saying like, I hate this fucking movie. And then he just closes it in his face. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's the next uh, joke there. So um, the next one is Jack's going to be working on his typewriter. All right. Um and as he's working on the typewriter, all of a sudden, a ghost starts also typing back to him, right? And Jack starts trying to communicate with the ghost via the typewriter. And, like, the ghost keeps, like, writing stuff back to him and all that. And it isn't until basically after the conversation is completely over that Jack realized he just got rickrolled by the ghost. 
and it sends Jack into a crazy rage because he just can't believe he got rickrolled by a ghost. Brett, no, hold on. Yeah. This is one of the few times where I think I can offer a tweet. The ghost types out a dick pic. <laughs> and you just have, like, the letters on the typewriter creating a dick shape. Okay, I like it. And Jack's just like, what the fuck? <laughs> I thought we were going to have this philosophical, I'm communicating with the afterlife, and you just want to show me a dick pic? Uh, okay, I can dig it. We'll, we'll, we'll wind up doing a dick pic there. So... This is this is this is when Jack now Jack you put that as the podcast description. Yeah, we'll do this as a dick pic now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, so when Jack is going to be at the bar, he's going to ask Lloyd for the usual, and Lloyd is going to pull out some chocolate syrup, some milk, and he's going to mix them up a little chocolate milk and hand it over to him. And Jack's just going to look confused, and then just be like. <gasps> Could I also get like a bourbon on the rocks? And then he's just going to wind up drinking the chocolate milk through a crazy straw while Lloyd continues to make the bourbon on the rocks. Uh, again, a lot of this is just ridiculous, stupid shit, but I felt like it's in line with a comedy. No, 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 no. It's brilliant. I did not ever anticipate going like the National Lampoons <laughs> or Hot Shots kind of vibe, but yep. it's, it's working for me. Uh, during the scenes where the blood pours out of the elevator, we're going to see the ghost twins float by on rafts drinking like drinks, like fruity cocktail drinks. They'll be non-alcoholic, whatever. And then maybe like a small radio goes by as well. And like everyone's just going to be confused at the girls going by. Uh, when Jack returns to the bar. Brett, yeah. I like that it's a hard R with full frontal nudity, but can't have the twin girls underage drinking. Obviously not. I mean, I know that they're probably like now because of how old they are as ghosts, they can drink, but you know, listen, we got to be responsible <laughs> here. When Jack returns to the bar, um, he gets escorted to the bathroom where Grady is going to try and tell him everything about like how his son's going to ruin everything. But the whole time we're just hearing somebody with like aggressive diarrhea in one of the stalls. At a certain point, <laughs> Grady is just going to be over and just be like, oh, get on with it. Right. He's just going to be done with it. Um, because like it's going to be that classic thing where every time Grady tries to say something, it's going and then every time he opens his mouth again, like it just keeps cutting him off. And like he's, he's going to lose his patience. Um, I think when... When Danny goes to spell red rum on the door, his mom doesn't take it as concerning because it's murder backwards. She gets upset that he misspelt it and then basically takes him through a spelling lesson. Like, if you're going to spell murder, smell it right, honey. All right. Um, then uh, the next thing is when Jack tears down the wall and says, here's Johnny. I'm thinking Wendy's just going to like, just like stop freaking out and just be like, who's who's Johnny? And then, like, they're just going to get into, like, this weird, like, couples, like, squabble about the fact that, like, well, I'm, I'm Johnny. I'm, I'm trying to scare you. Well, I've never called you Johnny before. Why would, how would I know that you're Johnny? What do you, why would you say Johnny? Why wouldn't you say here's Jack? And, like, go and the whole thing about that. He gets frustrated and he went, that's why he winds up walking away. Not because Dick winds up arriving, but because he just, he can't handle. Even though he's trying to murder her, the argument has taken him out of the moment and he walks away. Um... <laughs> I just want to say, Brett, mm -hmm. I like how that's like the most dad joke ever <laughs> in a movie about a dad trying to like, I, let me just say Stanley Kubrick. Actually, I probably shouldn't say this. This might be slander, but I feel like you're a way better father than Stanley Kubrick was. Thank you. Cut that if it's going to be slander. <laughs> 
So my last three or last two jokes here is I have Wendy checks on the snowcat. This is where I go full dad joke. This is so stupid. I can't believe I wrote this. Wendy goes to check on the snowcat because Jack tells her it's not working. And when she goes out, she finds a mysterious mysterious substance jammed into the engine. And she follows a trail of this. It's like a plant-like powder or something all the way to a box that just says snow catnip. So he took out the the snow cat with catnip. Um, again, that's terrible. Uh, and then when Jack is running through the hedge maze, I figure he'll turn around one of the things and once again run into the dog man, just as, again, continuing that joke throughout the movie. I don't have an end for the movie. I assume it still will be Wendy and Danny leaving in the snow cat and Dick snow cat. I, my mouth has been agape since the catnip joke. <laughs> Um, did your daughter write that? <laughs> I told you, dude, not all these were like grand slams. Like some of no, these were I, real I fucking stupid. It. I love it. It's just, <laughs> I can't believe that came from your mind. Like that's, <laughs> but you know what? I'm not a father, Brett. I feel like there's a certain switch that gets flipped where you can make that joke as a father and it would just never occur to me. Yeah. How would you oh, take check out? out the snow cat? Yeah. How would you take out the snow cat? Give it snow catnip. <laughs> so that's how I turned The Shining into a B-rated comedy. <laughs> yeah, you thought. God damn. Again, the sandbags are just piling up outside the Hollywood shop shop. Soon there's going to be a hurricane and I'm going to need them, dude. <laughs> no, that was beautiful. I'm... Uh... I would say I'm jealous, but I don't think I would have come up with that if I got comedy. So I, I think you nailed it. I, I floundered for a while, dude. I was like, I kept trying to think. I wanted to write it like I have some of the other chop shops. I'm like, I'm just going to do this. Like, I'm going to try and take some of the most iconic scenes and how I would just completely bastardize and warp this into something nonsensical. Yeah, and I think that's a good blueprint that I'm going to steal from you <laughs> if I ever get these genres again. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So, with that said, we've concluded another wonderful chop shop. I think we're ready to jump into Blue Book. You ready to do some Blue Book? Yes, sir. All righty. So, the budget, the market value for this movie was $19 million. Estimated, but $19 million nonetheless. What do you think it made U.S. and Canada? Uh, this one's going to be tough for me because I've been a fan of this movie for so long that maybe through osmosis I have an idea, but I want to say this was a bit of a flop. Uh, you said the budget was 19? 19. I'll say 43, U.S. and Canada. You are damn close, sir. 45. 45 mil, U.S. and Canada. All righty. What do you think it made gross worldwide? So, did you know Kubrick was an American? I didn't. I always assumed he was a Brit. Um, I probably would have assumed that as well. But good to know that he's an American, I guess, maybe. Yeah, I feel like he had some pull in, in European cinema, specifically English cinema. So, 
So this again, this is the U.S. Canada gross, and then I'm adding the worldwide to create yeah. a total. Yeah, this yeah exactly. This is the worldwide total. Seventy-three million. So here's the thing. I wish I had more time, and I had actually done a little bit more research on this one because the gross worldwide was forty-seven million. So I'm thinking it did not get much of a worldwide release because it only pulled about an extra. I'm gonna say one one point five mil. Wow, that seems incredibly low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have thought it, at least England or the United Kingdom would have jacked that up, but yeah, reporting from 1980s a little sus. Yeah. So with that, we've got two segments left. Three, if you want to talk up our our, our closing, our wrap up. I think it's time to do some tag title. All right, so this week, I cheated a little bit. You're going to have four, all right? Mm. You're going to have one from the original Shining. You're going to have one from a movie I find adjacent. The 1997 miniseries? See, I I had that down, Travis, but I knew you were going to give me shit for it, and I'm not a one-trick pony, so I didn't, all right? I mean, I still have it on my (laughs) list here, but I wasn't going to read that one. But I'm going to give you two, two that I wrote. All right. So here you go. These are your four tag and titles. I need you to tell me which title or tagline is from the original 1980, The Shining. I need you to tell me which of these taglines is from another movie, and then I need you to tell me which two taglines your boy made. All right. Here we go. Some stories can't be overlooked. The horror is driving him crazy. Exploring the blackness of the subconscious man. All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Wow. (laughs) All work and no play make Jack a dull boy. I'm debating on whether you are trying to 3D chess me on that. Or would it be 4D chess? Yeah, 4D chess be on that. I think that's an official tagline. All right. So if that's your official tagline, can you tell me what you think the other the other movie tagline is? And then by process well, of elimination. the one about can't be overlooked, mm-hmm. that's you. Okay. Guaranteed. Lead pipe lock. All right. And uh, give me the other two. The other two were, the horror is driving him crazy and exploring the blackness of the subconscious man. Blackness of the subconscious man is from another movie because you would not have risked... That's from another movie. Okay. So that pretty much, I think that settles it, doesn't it? Okay, so you think the horror is driving him crazy is either my other option... No, you think that that was the other one I wrote? Yes. Okay. So, here are the final results. The horror is driving him crazy is an official tagline from 1980's The Shining. That's terrible. Exploring the blackness of the subconscious man is 1960's Psycho. 
and then you're right sometimes our some stories can't be overlooked was absolutely me and then all work and no play make jack a dull boy was the original one i wrote for this but i thought oh travis is definitely gonna know that i wrote that one <laughs> and so i came up with a second one <laughs> No, the overlooked one though, that was way too clever. That was way too modern. I knew it from jump, but well done, sir. I'm gonna have to if I want to keep making these competitive. I'm gonna have to start trying to water myself down. So I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to dilute myself. Yeah, but you know, where's the joy in that, Brett? There's not. I mean, honestly, some of this is just stroking my own ego. So I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> some of it. Yeah, that's can the I only make, reason I do this, yeah. Brett. Can I make a better tagline than Hollywood? Fuck yeah, I can. All right. So with that said, sir, I'll hand it off to you. Time capsule. I said it right this week. What do you got for us? <laughs> Nothing. What? Because I, 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 I couldn't find a good time capsule here. Like, we know everything about Nicholson. We know everything about Kubrick. What about I don't feel Winter? like any of the side characters Winter? went on to be. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't there for me. I feel like the the conversation was robust enough. Yeah, honestly, all I think of when I see Shelley Duvall is uh, Popeye. Yeah, Popeye. I can't unsee her as what olive oil. Olive oil. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that hurts her portrayal even more and not her portrayal because again i think she was psychologically tortured by stanley kubrick but the fact that she also played olive oil uh, again i just i hate the way she's portrayed in this movie and i think the popeye portrayal has a lot to do with it too mm. it's same year both of those movies is came, it really yeah, I did both not know of those that. movies came out in 1980 can you imagine? Well, shit. There you go. Do you Brady did my that, job for me. That was the year she was. Like, you have to think she was going to break out that year, and she just got destroyed. Yeah, and I've heard that she was never really the same after this movie. Now that's anecdotal. Obviously, I don't know anything about her personal life, but is that something that you found through any level of research? No, but I can imagine where that would give you kind of a a very dark look on Hollywood, like. Anytime she's like, oh my God, we have another, like, you could work with Steven Spielberg. And she's like, is he anything like Kubrick? I can't deal with another Kubrick. And like, just, you won't work with like top level, you know. Auteurs, yeah. yeah. Because you're, you're terrified that you're going to wind up basically just reliving that hell. Yeah. And I would really like to find a Shelley Duvall, like whatever her, I guess featured or most famous performance is. I, unfortunately, I feel like it is The Shining, but I, I have to think she's a better actress than what Stanley Kubrick forced her into being in this movie. So, yeah, kind of a dark time capsule that that we improv there, but hey, you know, is what it is. But yeah, I mean, it looks like she did a, some TV, a lot of TV, maybe some like voice acting a lot of voice acting and she does have a very distinct voice so i can absolutely see that yeah yeah rough 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 yeah it almost looks uh, like yeah. she went straight tv almost after this movie like she might have had some other stuff she was working on but it looks like basically by 1984 
she wasn't doing movies anymore. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I hope it didn't affect her mental health to an extreme degree. I know it did to some extent, but also it's just like an athlete. What are you putting on tape? She did not put a good performance on tape. It was a Jack Nicholson and it was his show. So I, I can't imagine that directors and writers were watching this movie thinking, I want to cast Shelley Duvall. And I don't think that's really her fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she hasn't acted in anything since 2002. But she has been I a mean, producer. is she alive? I don't mean to be I was about to say, but... yeah, she might not be. No, she's still alive. Huh. Well, but... shout out, Shelly, if you're listening. Yep. He doesn't deserve anyway, you, you Shelly. Uh, you want to take this thing home? Yeah, so uh, ultimately, let's go ahead and do our, our final takes on it. Um, it should come as no surprise, regardless of my... Uh, my issues with the movie and, and how the movie was created. I still think it's a fantastic movie. Um, I think it is a great example of a bygone era. Again, of those very long panning shots. And much like with Total Recall, I think you would be remiss not to watch this movie just for its cultural relevance. I think, you know, we talked about the carpet. Um, here's Johnny. Like, there's just... Even the, the scenes of, like, the ghosts when Wendy, like, the, the part we hated the most with Wendy walking through and seeing the ghosts, like, that stuff gets brought up in, in like, even, like, cartoons and stuff like that um, all the time, where it's, like, you're really missing a lot of inside jokes by not seeing The Shining. And then beyond that, I mean, it is just, it is a fantastic movie. I, I definitely recommend watching it. I owned it for the longest time up until I purged my dvd collection and i have yet to buy it back on blu-ray but i could definitely see me picking this one up because i think it's it's a great you know uh scary thriller movie especially for the halloween season 100 percent agree um part of this movie is a little bit problematic like stanley kubrick i have to question some of his views but the jack nicholson unintentional or intentional comedy automatic automatically makes this a must watch at least once. But the reason I think that I would say it's a must own if you like film at all is because very rarely do I watch a movie through the eyes of Brett Mosher and the cinematography, the camera work in this movie is so gorgeous that it had me thinking I guess more of a, as an engineer, more of a technical expert, even though I'm far from that. So I can't imagine you with the mind that you have, Brett, how beautiful you found this movie. Like just. Absolutely. Scene, I mean, some angles, of the et cetera. scenes that bring like, the only time I brought it up with, you know, Grady talking in the bathroom, but that bright red bathroom when they're talking like, again, it just feels almost ominous again like you're in the heart of the hotel as grady is talking to jack about like you need to take care of the cook correct them you need to correct them and again like this red room to me again it, it embodies the heart of the hotel basically telling jack what he needs to do this you know the with the soul here 
um even the scene we brought it up with the 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 naked woman that comes out of the bathtub like the way she climbs out of the bathtub is so unnatural and almost like a spider like where she like she pulls her, yeah she pulls her leg up to cover up and then just kind of like crawls out and then once she's out of the bathtub very natural kind of like almost like a ballerina like a model walking but like the way she pulls herself out of that bathtub is it is terrifying the way that that she moves and like there's so much of that throughout this movie it it, it is so well done yeah so just the fact that i can't help but notice how almost scene for scene everything is just perfectly shot i, I couldn't think of a way to shoot it better i i love it and yeah highest recommend mm -hmm. it, it's it's got some problems and if you really look at maybe the narrative part of it but incredible yeah I mean, one of my favorite parts narratively too, that again, I'm just kind of looking over some of my loose notes here as we're closing up is like, you know, the exact moment like Kubrick and it is a little, I think it is very like hitting the nail on the head um, type type thing. But like the moment, you know, Jack has lost it and he's given himself to the hotels. Like when he goes to the bar and he, he literally gives the line, I give my goddamn soul for a glass of beer and boom, Lloyd shows up and there he is with the alcohol and gives him the bourbon you're like this is it jack is jack has given himself over to the hotel at this very moment and this is where it is time for him to kill his family yeah and i'm interested to know where that falls in the story because he disables the snowcat before really shit pops off. So I'm assuming that after that scene where he offers to sell his soul for a glass of beer, I would assume shortly after that is when he disables the snowcat. Yeah, I assumed he did it when he disabled the radio. Right, right. Yep. It's just the movie for as random as it seems, because we have this, uh, you know, where they're showing, you know, Thursday, it's Wednesday, it's this day it all seems so random but yet you know that jack has been planning this for a little bit so another big thumbs up to this movie is just the rewatchability because you can kind of watch it and try to piece together the timeline and try to figure out how quickly was jack really ready to just murder his family because some could argue it was on the drive up yeah <laughs> it's they definitely plant the seeds <laughs> absolutely well amigo you got anything else before we head out of here nope i think that's about it so uh thanks for sticking around we look forward to seeing you next week i believe it is it follows indeed it is and uh, i just want to let the audience know that uh you got a big surprise coming to you you're not going anywhere go check out the snowcat and the radio and you'll see what i mean Go check it out. Uh, actually, Brett, I was, I had a pop up and I closed it, so I may have stepped on your audio. Is that going to matter for your open? No, because I have mine's isolated. So, okay, okay, yep. <clears throat> right. Can't wait to put that in the post, though. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. You ever some tagging title? Yeah, I was trying to think of a pull quote from this movie, but... Uh... <laughs>
All right, so... No, just cut that whole shit out, because I didn't have one. Yeah, for sure, yeah. I, I wouldn't leave it in there to make you look silly. Definitely wouldn't. Nope. Um, 